I position quest as very different to mission. If someone's on a mission, your focus is narrowed, you're working towards a clear promise, the pathway is quite linear, it's very easy to measure success or failure, and, and the outcomes are often binary. If we're considering things where we, we don't know necessarily what the goal looks like, but we we nonetheless know that we can't keep doing what we're doing, um, a quest is our ability to venture beyond the default. Now, if we think about our defaults being the options we choose automatically in the absence of viable alternatives, Quests are the search for viable alternative options to the default ways of doing things. Great to be back with you for another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose. First off, a big thanks to our major sponsor, Neon Treehouse, for all their wonderful social media support. They are your go-to full-service digital marketing agency for bright and imaginative solutions. Learn more at neontreehouse.com or find a link in our show notes. I'm thrilled to also announce that Arepa have joined as our new drink sponsor for 2024. The Arepa team asked me for a testimonial this week, and this is what I had to say. My wife and I love a daily afternoon Arepa for a refreshing kick and performance boost that tastes great and is backed by the latest science. Try Arepa for yourself and get an exclusive 25% Humans of Purpose discount by heading to drinkarepa.com.au and entering promo code HOP25 at checkout conveniently linked for you also in our show notes. This week on the podcast, I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with Dr. Jason Fox. Jason is a wizard philosopher masquerading as a leadership futurist. He's an accomplished author, keynote speaker, blogger, and facilitator of participatory learning and leadership programs spanning a range of important and compelling topics. His website is full of the kind of brain-tickling prose that you'll find in his books, his wonderful blog, The Newsletter, which you'll meet well on his website and throughout engaging with the wizard himself. I followed Jason's intriguing persona online for a number of years and thought it was high time to have our first wizard philosopher on the podcast. I really enjoyed hanging out with Jason and have truly never met anyone quite like him. It's like he lives on a different plane to most, which is probably why he's able to offer the insights he does through all his insight-rich mediums. I'd best describe Jason as a warm yet introverted pirate from the future, crossed with an academic from the early 1900s. Before we get stuck in, a quick thanks to the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre for sponsoring us this month. I hope you enjoy our episode with CEO and founder Con K last week. If you missed it, make sure it's next in your listening queue to hit up right after this one. The ASRC are doing some truly impactful work in supporting asylum seekers and refugees and making them feel welcome right here in Australia. One way to get involved is to be part of the Feast for Freedom campaign. You can sign up now to celebrate what unites us. Head to feastforfreedom.org.au today to register to host a life-changing feast. You can also find a conveniently placed link in our show notes. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jason as much as I did. Jason, fantastic to have you with us today, and thanks so much for bringing coffee. What a what a good treat to start the uh, afternoon off. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I mean, it, walking in in Melbourne with a coffee in your hand is your excuse if you're a little bit late. But at this time, I arrived on time. You, you actually didn't have to make an excuse. You were very early, which is like already a win. So yeah. it's the double bonus points yeah, already. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, straight to it. Is one born a wizard and philosopher? And if not, how do you become one? Oh, um, <laughs> good question. Um, I'm, I don't think there's any kind of innateness to this kind of quality. Um, this is something that, uh, any one of us can have that, uh, um, that we, we can all develop. 
uh, what do we mean by wizard? Um, in my sense of it, um, I mean, wizard is a, is a term that I use as an a, a alternative to thought leader or expert or any of those overused terms that kind of induce cringe on LinkedIn. And um, <laughs> wizard, though, from an archety- archetype, uh, it kind of still embodies the, this notion of um, wisdom of um, well, the word literally etymologically comes from wise, uh, an extension of wisdom. Um, and so how does one become one? Um, to be a wizard, this is a, this is, we could speak for an hour of this, right? But but to be a wizard, one has to have an an a keen acuity for emergence, for a, a, like a, a sensibility for the conditions in which, for not, like if we think about what what is magic, magic is phenomena that exist at an order of complexity beyond our ability to um, comprehend. My phone works like magic. Um, but this is also something that can be studied. So the pathway to magic for a wizard is via studying and understanding and learning and applying these crafts, um, which is different to a shaman that will probably take plant medicine and so on and access the magic <laughs> that way. Nostrils. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, that, that's, I guess yeah, anyone can be a wizard. And did you know that you were destined to be one? So did you spend your younger years thinking deeply, reflecting, um, trying to pass out complexity, trying to see patterns? My, um, oh, it's always like the temptation to uh, thread together past experiences into some sort of coherent narrative form is, is its own fallacy. <laughs> but um, my, you know, my undergraduate was environmental sciences and living systems, and uh, that introduced me into a world of complexity. Um, I, I think a lot of the synthesis kind of came through there, but this stuff is just, you know, you, you stumble through life and eventually, you know, and, and periodically you look back and you kind of thread it together and, it, oh yeah, that kind of seems to make sense. So, and, and when it comes to narrative or these kind of terms like wizard and all of these things, it's, it's really just our own ability to make sense and to hold some sort of container for our perspective or, of, of who we, who we seem to to be at this particular moment in time. And, and wizard still serves. I mean, I more fancy myself as a rogue who knows a few spells, um, but wizard works in a, in a enterprise context. People are impressed by the, the term wizard. I think it's playful and fun. I, I like particularly the divergence from LinkedIn speak. It's, it's, it's refreshing. Yeah, I don't know if it does me favors from an SEO perspective. Um, I don't know how many people are, you know, how many CEOs are waking up thinking, I need a wizard. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, LinkedIn needs a shakeup. My gosh. Um, uh, you know, I, I yearn for a time where LinkedIn, it can feel like uh, a group of friends having a conversation on the weekend. Like, and here's the thing I do, I do these leadership offsites, I, I speak at events and so on. And and often there's a case where people show up on stage and they're in their armor and they're all serious and they're saying all the buzzwords and so on. But then you hang out with them over a whiskey and stuff like that, and they're great. Yeah, and they're like, folks. why can't we just be like this all the time? Yeah. Um, that's that's my yearning. Too much posturing. I think, yeah. I think and, yeah. and you talk, and we will get to post-authenticity and authenticity, because we have to know what comes before before we know what comes after. Very right. helpful. Yep. Um, but, I mean, it, it's just fascinating to me, because I think um, – now is a time when we actually need more wizards and philosophers. We need deeper thinking. We need to understand that we live in complex systems. But I go back and I think, wow, young Dr. Jason Fox or even pre-doctor, Mr. Jason Fox, um, might have thought, I'm doing environmental science. I could do just about anything. What drew you to leadership and management? Because I think, you know, when I think about those things, I think 
wow, that's a dry space. It's a space that's it's ripe for disruption. We get every few years some really interesting words like um, adaptive, mm-hmm. uh, mindful, and then we put them in front of leadership mm-hmm. and it sort of becomes a thing. Mm-hmm. What was it for you that sort of drew you to that quest, so to speak? Uh, a, a few things. I'll, I'll kind of unpack a little little journey, but I just really like that observation that you have of what I would consider to be the domestication of leadership. Um, we've taken something that should be a, uh, something that's quite wild and organic um, and we've made it, we've cultivated it into something that's quite domesticated and predictable. Most enterprise leadership programs follow a pretty default formula and it's a recipe for underwhelming success, yet predictable success. And I don't think it's going to be what we need for where the world is going. Um, my, during my PhD in motivation and behavior science, um, which emerged out of uh, eco-philosophy and environmental education, um, I started playing World of Warcraft and I got addicted to that game uh, and it was more powerful than any of the tools that I was, you know, researching, talking about. And so I wrote a book on, um, you know, using motivation science and game design and that became a bestseller, but it also happened at the time that gamification became a buzzword. And so leadership teams would bring me in to gamify their workplace and I was just uh, perplexed at the lack of curiosity. Like people would just leapt to this quick fix, this kind of hot buzzword to try to solve complex issues. It's like, let's, let's do agile. Yeah, exactly. Let's that. do agile. And uh, and all, all the insert buzzwords dash leadership things. Yeah. And, and I'm just so frustrated with that pattern that it um, spurred me on to write How to Lead a Quest, which is how do, we, how do we kind of make meaningful progress amidst uncertainty, ambiguity, paradox, complexity, the unknown effectively, the unprecedented, the uncharted. I didn't know you were a gamer, but it makes a lot of sense now. Um, I should have done more research, and perhaps if I had a team, I might be able to do a bit more research. <laughs> it's, it's a funny thing. It's and so it's it's something I hold lightly because sometimes, like, I did a webinar uh, recently, and they knew of the the game changer thing, and so they they took that stock photo- photography thing of someone holding the controller oh, with way too you know an excited a face on and stuff like that. And I think for folks that aren't gamers, they don't quite understand the 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 magic that happens when you're in the game world yep. they just see the superficiality of it which is my issue with gamification it kind of eclipses the deeper the deeper um, magic that's going on and just looks at points badges leaderboards and yeah i mean game games are the ultimate um environment of magic and sense making aren't they uh, i think good games in particular and with the tech that we've got now i mean i think about some of the most beautiful games that i've played and i won't geek out too much for our listeners who are non-gamers but i think about like games like god of war or oh, yeah. um, uh, horizon zero dawn mm-hmm. and some of these open world games where it's just like um the ones where you lose track of time because you're so in them and that says something to me about um creating environments of tranquility, safety, curiosity, but also deep mindful engagement. Yeah. And, and there's also a pattern language there. The, mm. um, <laughs> the use of mythology and the way that manifests, there, there is almost this um, shared language that gamers across different nations and cultures and age groups have because of the shared experience of being in these worlds, which I don't think many people have quite clued on to yet, but it's there when it comes to collective coordination and its complexity at scale, I think there's something quite profound in that. Um, that, yeah, that's that's one of the things that excites me at the moment. I don't quite have the language around it, and I'm and I'm worried. I, I need to protect it from it becoming hokey or twee, where you know, because what we're talking about here is a, a deeper felt experience. And the, and the other thing too is when you play a game as opposed to watching a movie, 
you feel the emotional uh, impact of decisions a lot more because you're you're part of it. You're immersed in it. Yeah, it, it, yeah there, there is so much ma- magic within games. And like when I think about quests, I always think about probably one of the first quest-driven games I'd really fallen in love with was um, Zelda's Ocarina of Time. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the, the deep mythos within that and the idea of going on a quest and how beautiful and exciting it was but as i got older that sort of changed to mountains so and but it's it's also a quest it's sort of like what is the next mountain that i'd like to try and climb Mm. um and for me that's powerful i wonder how you think about quests and sort of how you beyond the game world imagine a quest to be are you talking about literal mountains no, I don't climb mountains. <laughs> okay, I, right, tried, cool. I, I did try when I was in Patagonia, but um, I didn't get too far. I had a bad back. Okay, yeah, cool. I was like, oh, wow, there you go. Um, uh, yeah. Metaphorical mountains. I, I like that. Yeah, that's my, my kind of mountain too. Um, um, how do I think of a quest? Now, in in the context of my book, How to Lead a Quest, it's I, I take a, a rather specific definition. So this is a Trojan horse book. This is smuggling um, complexity sensibilities into enterprise land. So I have to use language that appeals to the cognitive gatekeepers, i.e. the executives and the other oligarchs. And um, so I, I position quest as very different to mission. If someone's on a mission, your focus is narrowed, you're working towards a clear promise, the pathway is quite linear, it's very easy to measure success or failure, and, and the outcomes are often binary. Um and and thus, you know, it works very well in a in a kind of like a, an Olympic sense to be fixated on a particular goal or in a um, short time period where you know exactly what success looks like. Um, but if we're considering uh, time periods beyond short term, and if we're considering things where we we don't know necessarily what the goal looks like, but we we nonetheless know that we can't keep doing what we're doing. Um, a quest is our ability to venture beyond the default. Now, if we think about our defaults being the options we choose automatically in the absence of viable alternatives, quests are the search for viable alter- alternative options to the default ways of doing things. Um, what does? Um, why do so many of us get stuck in default mode? Oh, well, they're safe, comfortable, and familiar. And one of the, you know, from a motivation perspective, um, one of the things that works with games uh, is that our motivation-focused attention and behavior naturally gravitates to the things that provide the richest sense of progress. And this is where we have really tight feedback loops uh, within game worlds, but also in, in the real world too. We do emails, we get a sense of progress around that, we attend meetings and so on. The real question is, is this meaningful progress? And what I find is a lot of the work that we do could be considered a delusion of progress. This is where we, we do these nice loops that give us a sense of dopamine, that, that give us a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. They're, they're safe, comfortable, familiar, easily to me- easy to measure. They have precedence. No one can really tell you off for doing that thing because, you know, this is what we do. And that there was an interesting thing during the pandemic. A lot of leaders found themselves micromanaging uh, because they re- there was so much anxiety and uncertainty, they returned to behaviors that worked for them before. So they felt good, they were doing something and so on. But the job of leaders, the real job of leadership is to step up and into complexity, ambiguity, and paradox. Mm. It is to shine a light on the path for others to follow. And so this is partly, you know, a lot of the my challenge with leadership programs and why I, I talk in languages of, of questing and ambiguity is because so often leaders are just just yearning for, I, w- I want the concrete plan. I want concrete ideas. I want to know exactly what we're doing. Of course, everyone does, but people are looking to you for that, um, leader. Um, <laughs> so, so increasing our comfort amidst uh, the unknown is is one of the important uh, qualities of of leading a quest. Did you ever read a book called The Comfort Crisis? No, it's quite interesting. Uh, it, 
to summarize, um, quite a good book that's actually a pretty short read as well. I think it's about 200 pages. It's a book written by um, a, a fellow who's looking at um, how basically we've created a society that is just way too comfortable for all of us. And so that leads us to this default of uh, safety seeking when we really should be doing things that are a little bit harder for us, uh, perhaps every day, perhaps on a weekly basis to encourage us into that um, space of uncertainty. I think you'd like it. Yeah, it makes sense. And this kind of marries up with um, uh, anti-fragility and so yeah. on. And, and it also makes sense from a larger scale in in society. We're in an exponential age, age now. We've got AI, we've also got climate collapse and all these other things going on. I don't think we can rely on past structures as as um, as much as we have in the past, which requires us to have an acuity, some sort of like a deafness and an attunement for the reality that we find ourselves in and the orientation to what we could consider to be meaningful progress. Do you have a favorite um, delusional progress activity? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, in most organizations, it's much more of a career advancement strategy to broadcast that you're doing the work than it is actually do the work itself. Um, <laughs> Hence LinkedIn. <laughs> that's right. Hence LinkedIn. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I'm so honored and um, you know, um, humbled to um, share this thing. Shocked that um, I received another award. That's right. right. Exactly. Yeah. And this stuff happens within enterprise too. So, I mean, there's meetings, meetings about meetings, emails, emails about emails, a rich pantomime of busyness that, um, you know, that, that does give the illusion of work happening. Um, the question is, is this meaningful progress? And I should probably define that. Meaningful progress is that which brings us closer to future relevance. Mm. Future relevance means the activities that we're doing make sense given the context we find ourselves in. The delusion of progress is where default thinking gets in the way of meaningful progress. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. And, and I think, you know, the busyness that's worn like a badge of honor, um, I'm hoping that slips is a thing soon, but I still, the day that I don't hear people of uh, my age or older talk about how busy they are and sort of do the bodily thing where they move aggressively when they say that or like do a facial expression to prove their busyness, that will be a good day when that's over. Yeah. I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand my relationship to the notion of quiet quitting. Like there's, there's a perverse part of me that's actually like, yeah, fuck yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, like, look after yourself. Like, yeah. I'm not going to – I like it when people tell me that they've given up things. I yeah. find that really inspiring. Yeah. I like to ask them why and what's that unlocked for them and what's that enabled them to do instead. And um, I also really like telling people um, that, you know, like um, <laughs> I've been in between jobs for a couple of months. I like a daytime nap. And oh, just, yeah. Just watching the reaction. Oh, yeah. I love a day. Who doesn't like a daytime yeah. nap? Yeah. And, Bring it. Maybe that's the antidote to the, the busyness badge. Well, that's interesting because, like, um, uh, there's this beautiful book by Jenny O'Dell called How to Do Nothing, uh, Resi Resisting the Attention Economy. Uh, I think naps would qualify as a, <laughs> as a very good candidate for, for a good strategy in that department. Maybe that can motivate me. Um, and so part of the challenge here, I think, is questioning – are the type of leaders leaders that got us to where we are in maybe 2015 when you printed the book, the same type of leaders that can take us on these new quests forward towards meaningful progress? Yeah, that, that, that question is beautifully subversive. It cuts to the heart of my existential angst at the moment. Um, my first book was very much, the, the game changer before that was very much trying to impress and appeal to incumbent powers. Um, How to Lead a Quest was very much kind of alongside them as a frustrated friend, like, come on guys, like, don't kid yourself. Um, but seven years later, I'm like, hmm, I, I don't know. You know, if I think about genuinely the future of leadership, see, see this is the thing, in, in conference land, people will book you to speak about the future of leadership, but what they want to hear is exactly as things are with just some sort of veneer of, you know, future sounding words. Did I tell you that or it's just implied? 
Hey, no, they, no, no, they, they don't, don't, they don't say front. They, they genuinely, they, 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 like, we want to hear about AI. We want to hear about, um, <laughs> you know, there's, um, there's this new technology happening. If you can talk about collaboration and transformation and breakthrough <laughs> innovation and agility and so on. And just, it's just this bucket list of things. People know what they want. They want a little bit of entertainment that makes them feel good and feel like a sense of they know what's going on. Like they're ready for the future of leadership. Like they're ready uh, with everything staying the same. Hmm. And when I consider what does the real future of leadership look like, I I think it's much more decentralized than what people are experiencing now. And anyone who's worked in environments with asynchronous comms and healthy asynchronous comms will know what that looks like. Mm -hmm. It's much less hierarchical. Um, the people aren't so wedded to their roles that they don't pitch in when work needs to be done. Um, there's almost like a permissionless leadership uh, quality to it. I see a lot of what's happening in the Web3 space, which is maturing uh, immensely. I, I, I feel like there are, there are some qualities there that are quite inspiring in terms of how people coordinate amidst complexity at scale without even necessarily knowing each other or working in the, in the same room as each other. There's, this, this is quite profound and amazing in an anti-fragile networked way. And, and there, there are leadership qualities there that we need to be attuned to. Plus, I think we need to be mindful of the incredible power of narrative and memetics in terms of uh, coordination. Um, and so from that sense, you know, there's, there's this like uh, Venkatesh Rao, the, um, an, a writer that I, I really admire. He writes uh, Ribbon Farm. Um, he talked about this uh, millennial, no, uh, metamodern management concept, which includes lawcraft. Lawcraft being internal stories that um, people cultivate and share as a way of... Um, Internally making sense of things and coping uh, amidst all the challenges and change. And there's, uh, I, you hear my hesitation. This is beautiful, the charm of an unedited <laughs> podcast. I'm right at the edge here. There's these emergent concepts that I don't think have worked their way into the conventional leadership canon mm. that I think are just so profound and so where we need to orientate towards if we're going to continue to lead meaningful progress amidst all the complexities of an exponential age. I love it. And so, I mean, one thing I always grapple with, and maybe this is sort of tangential or core to the question, I'm not sure which one, but, um, you know, how much can people change? Sort of like, are there, are there innate qualities that can make one a good leader of which in the absence of one cannot become a good leader? Um and I suppose that's a hard one to ask to a to a, a leadership expert in that you know. You're oh, I'm no expert. I'm just a, an enthusiast. A rogue. Um, a yeah, rogue. that's right. Yeah, that's constantly <laughs> engaged with a changing, shifting field. Because um, I mean, the the assumption in the question might be: Should everyone aspire to be a leader? Oh, yeah. So okay, I love that. Um, there's this perverted sense where everyone, you know, if we were to crudely summarize it down, everyone's trying to be the CEO. That doesn't make sense. And um, certainly, my experience working. Um, in scientific research organizations, uh, worked with a large one here in Australia where really good scientists, if you're doing your job really well, you get promoted away from scientific research into position of leadership. Yeah. And then you have these people that aren't people, people having to manage and lead people and really missing being in the lab. And they would have been much happier, much, much more effective there. And that would have been more effective for have someone who can coordinate people there. I think that we venerate the role of leadership far too much. Um, if anything, I want to um, reduce the divergence between what it means to be a frontline worker and what it means to be a inverted commas leader. Um, <coughs> I think, I think this kind of, if we can, so one of the things I, I'm playing with is like, what does it mean to, to play our roles, to role play at work mm. and to do that really well in whatever situation we find ourselves in. And 
one of the one of the things that society can keeps telling us is that we're not enough and we should be aspiring to more and this perpetuates this cycle of suffering where people feel like I'm not doing enough and I need to have goals and I need to keep striving and so on instead of actually embracing where they find themselves in life right there so back to the original question can people change yes I also think that sometimes people have their strong suits and they have their position where they're like, I feel really fulfilled with this. I'm very good at this. I'd love to keep doing this. And there's also, um, you know, to, to kind of speak to the elephant in the room, maybe there are some leaders that are holding on to positions of power and not doing the mature thing of, uh, you know, distributing power and relinquishing it and so on. I, I wish that we had more of a role for elders within organizations and within society itself. Uh, we, we kind of, we begin to appreciate it in an indigenous context here in Australia, mm. but I think there is immense wisdom, uh, a pattern acuity that is accumulated by folks that have uh, a lot of experience but it may be that the context has shifted and the kind of leadership that is required is much more fluid uh, than than what they're used to or comfortable with. That doesn't mean that they don't have a valuable role to play. Um, so in all of this, I, I encourage much more messy, uh, nebulous, organic, fluid approach to um, sense-making and meaningful progress. What have you seen, you talked about Web3 before, and I think one of the things that I read from your website is that some of the more exciting practices you've seen organically have come from DAOs or decentralized... Autonomous organizations. Thank you. What are you seeing there? Oh, I mean, heaps of bullshit. Like, it's just like heaps of failed experiments uh, done earnestly. But what I'm also seeing is a lot of genuine interest in governance um, because what we're effectively trying to do is coordinate activity and investment and behaviors amidst strangers from all over the world. And how we do that in a way that, like one of the concepts I like is, is this notion of optimal conflict. The idea being that in a, in a discussion, you don't want no conflict because you're like, shit, is everyone just agreeing? Is everyone just being nice here? Like, yep. what do people actually think? We also don't want toxic conflict where you have egos or personalities derail the, the thing and just blow it out of proportion. We, we want optimal conflict, which means that we have a space where it's safer, there to be differing opinions, where we can actually have, you know, folks really reason out things and 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 um, and come up with like what is the the most wholesome solutions. Now, the challenge is a DAO cannot be cunning, so because everything happens in an open, transparent way. Uh, the, the 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 context of a DAO, which most people realize now, is actually quite a mature end state. Uh, most organizations need to start um, fairly centralized. You need to ha have a core team to kind of get shit done and to kind of you know wedge your way into things. But after after several years, it actually makes sense to you to to kind of move further on the decentralization spectrum. I find that whole dynamic to be quite fascinating and the experimentation that's happening around how that can be done in an equitable, transparent, and fair way to be really insightful. Um, the thing that happens in Web3 that I like is that there is a maturity around understanding how incentives work and influence the way that we act and behave. Whereas in the Web2 or traditional world, we kind of don't talk about it. Mm. Uh, I was facilitating a, a strategy offsite with a um, group of professors uh, last week in Sydney that are trying to coordinate together for a transdisciplinary research initiative. And I had to raise the question, like, how does this work with your incentives? Like, what are you guys incentivized to do? And the reality is that they're incentivized to work on their own projects. There is no, like, this falls into a big gray area. Everyone's feeling busy and overworked as it is anyway. 
And if we don't actually genuinely soberly address that question, these wonderful ideas of transdisciplinary cross, you know, cultural collaboration probably won't won't emerge. Mm. Um, so I think there's there's a kind of a, a sober maturity in terms of how we coordinate that um, Web3 is at the bleeding edge of making a lot of mistakes and also learning a lot of things too. So when you're doing your um, tour or circuit, I don't know what you call it, um, the, the the rounds next year of the keynotes and, and whatnot and offsites, there'll be a number of themes that you'll be talking about. What, what do you foresee some of the sort of key emerging um, things at the moment that you're kind of distilling now that maybe you'll bring next year into your talks? Uh, I, okay, yeah. So I have just this withering contempt for the buzzwords that are going to emerge so we've got we've got ai at the moment i thought, I thought you might have hated that question <laughs> oh no it's, it's it's good it's good it's this landscape i've got to dance within it's like the you know the pantomime of bullshit that i need to show up in as some sort of like player it's it's so hard for me i have to like wear two but you get yeah. to be fox wizard later so we'll get into maybe that. <laughs> maybe so so um okay i think that we're going to be in this kind of weird hangover of inflated expectations regarding artificial intelligence yeah. um We've uh, already seen that bubble pop in the, the VC and sort of oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. utility space. Yeah, and I've moved through this with, through many of the things. Yep. It's like it happened with the Web3 stuff too. Uh, I, I, you know, the Gartner hype cycle is often not really that accurate, but the model itself is pretty cool at tracking, you know, the technology trigger, peak of inflated expectations, the trough of disillusionment, and then the slope of enlightenment. <laughs> and um, I, I get quite excited in the trough of disillusionment and I really like the notion of being disillusioned and being disenchanted because it means that we get to see things for as they are. Yeah. Isn't that also where good innovation starts? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and so, unfortunately, uh, when people book a motivational speaker and the motivational speaker brings disillusion and disenchantment, it uh, doesn't doesn't always translate. Um, so, so there's hence the dance. Like, it's it's a weird thing. I mean... Um, so in terms of themes, um, I'm seeing this interesting trend towards localization, um, which makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, even things like uh, companies thinking about their contact centers, thinking about how can you have it more locally situated and embodied. And I'm, I'm, I think we'll be, you know, entering more mature conversations around AI, but that also forces us to be like, well, what do we do and what are we comfortable outsourcing and so on. And I also think that going through this El Nino summer that we're going to have in, in Australia is going to genuinely put uh, the climate crisis on the radar for folks. Mm. Uh, you and I were both at the Purpose Conference and yeah. we understand that, um, you know, legislation is quite ca- catching up in terms of greenwashing and so on. And I think that the time of uh, paying lip service to this is is over well and truly. Um, so I imagine that being a theme. My challenge is... I'm very aware of the meta crisis, uh, uh, Jevons paradox, multipolar traps, uh, and so on. And, and I, I'm skeptical at the techno exuberance that some people can bring to the equation. Um, and uh, you know, whilst you know there's profit to be made in you know being a tech optimist futurist that says oh, it may look bad, but look over there, you know, they're making another kind of solar car um, or whatever uh, electric car. Um, Whilst, you know, there's, there's going to be an interest in that, I think there are deeper questions around how capitalism works, uh, the mo- modern monetary theory itself that, that we need to address. But they're of an order of complexity and abstraction that's beyond most people's interest. Wow, that that that's, that's a bit. We'll have to come see you on tour next year. Okay, sorry. Yeah. See how you're grappling. See, yeah, yeah, that's right. I'll just, I'll just <laughs> see me at the back of the bar with a whiskey. You know, it's like, yeah. Anyway. I, I think you've you've nailed some of the themes, especially like that. Um, that uh, 
localization, I think, has been an interesting one um, that maybe came after COVID, but then resurgence after cost of living and supporting local community and sort of connectivity. Yeah, a lot of beautiful things emerge during periods of crisis. Mm-hmm. We we remember things like um, for those of us in Melbourne. I mean, pandemic is really bad, of course. And a lot of good things emerged from that, where we remembered, oh, it's actually really nice to walk and support local and hang, have picnics with friends. Um, <clears throat> I should also mention, just in amongst the themes next year, for the last year, a friend of mine, uh, Paul Carney, and I have been—we've been running events called the Rekindling, um, which uh, post doom sensibilities for the collapse aware, um, and the sense of people being collapse aware. It's a not an easy topic to talk about, but a lot of environmental scientists, a lot of complexity practitioners are aware that the current systems that we have cannot keep on going as they are. Mm-hmm. The current economy can't keep on running on infinite growth when we're already exceeding many planetary boundaries. And so that's going to have implications, particularly potentially catastrophic cascade effects. And um, this is where at the Purpose Conference, Digby Hall was talking about, like this is crying at the dinner table kind of conversations. Yep. Um, so there are folks that are aware of this and that are trying to orientate towards post-doom sensibilities, but that's, that's the other world that I play in. In the meantime, in enterprise land, everything's like bright green and future is great. You know, we just got like this. So is that, can I, uh, is, is that a bit why, why the, um, the persona, um, you talk about Dr. Jason Fox by day and then, uh, Fox wizard by night. Is yes. that sort of a bit of the split that it enables is. you to do? Oh yeah, it is. To be playful and a bit cynical, but then also do the work. Yeah. It's, it's so, so I have Dr. Fox, arc wizard of ambiguity, most fantastic that shows up in enterprise land, says the things and smuggles in the sensibilities. My, my quest is to co-create a world more curious and kind. And a lot of the leadership challenges that people face come down to relationality. How can we create contexts of better relations between people, between organizations, between bioregions, all of that stuff. Now that's 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 good foregrounding work and good kind of work initially, but then there is the eco-philosopher part of me who sees the patterns and the trends, who also sees that the the current uh, popular solutions aren't necessarily that adequate, although that's, you know, good noble lies and um, good, and who knows, things might emerge. Um, but uh, yeah, I've realized that a lot of where I'm concerned about doesn't translate to any kind of commercial efficacy. So I've got to keep that bit alive, but off to the side whilst I do the dance uh, for Enterprise Land. Oh, I think it's fantastic that it's out and about because I think we're all complex, compartmentalized people and to play otherwise is a bit uh, false. Yeah, it's this, in, it's this thing. I try to do the integrative thing. Um, there's this weird thing like, you know, most uh, folks that have some sort of public persona feel the need to um, maintain a level of consistency in how people perceive them. And there's this very real risk of audience capture where you do a particular thing, you get good feedback for that thing. So you do more of that thing, you get more feedback for that thing. And before you know it, you've been captured by the audience that you're meant to serve and you veered so far off track from your own values or what you actually genuinely believe in or enjoy doing um, because you have the metrics that say that this is working. Um, uh, I remember reading a, a thing that, uh, or hearing Tyson Yunkaporter, uh, the author of Sand Talk. And Jim, oh, he's terrific. Yeah, he's great. He's saying that like he, as a way to avoid audience capture, he would intentionally say things in different ways, um, sometimes kind of con- disagree with previous things that he said, sometimes confuse people. <laughs> and I love this. It's got some real mercurial trickster energy of like staying attuned and poetic um, 
that that I try to emulate, but just I've also, you know, I've also got to, I've also got to be somewhat commercially effective. Um, there was a time in the past where I didn't have this epiphany, uh, and yeah, that was great for business. I was doing, I, I genuinely believed in in a lot of the things. Um, nowadays, I'm not so sure. The pathway out of this remains non-obvious, but there are some patterns and principles that we can attune to that may mitigate some of the unnecessary suffering that um, seems to be. Uh, on the horizon, and and in terms of how you manage your time and and personas, um, how do you do that? Because you've got, and and I guess a related question would be, how do you know you're doing a good job? Is the other thing because I, I think podcasting might be a good analogy. We release this, um, you know, a couple of thousand people listen, or whatever. No one emails me. No one like I might bump into someone and they say, "Oh, enjoyed that the other day," but otherwise, I have no idea other than just numbers on a screen, which I don't really care about. So, how do you manage your time and break? break it across being a writer, being a keynote speaker, being a thinker. Um, but then also how do you know, um, or do you, do you care? Like, you know, or how do you measure whether you're doing a good job? Yeah. I try not to measure. Um, but the qualitative stuff makes a huge difference. Mm. Um, can I just say anyone listening right now, if you're enjoying Mike's work and, um, humans of purpose, send a note, like this stuff (laughs) is just huge. Like the, the, sometimes I'll get an email that's just a, a quick note saying, really love the latest um, newsletter or episode or something. Um, thanks. And I'm like, that is huge. Like, yeah, I, it, makes people, massive, it actually makes it, your day, doesn't it? It makes a huge difference. Yep. I, I know you're feeling like- I texted I'm, you the other day saying how much I was oh, enjoying your book. Yeah, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Um, this is this thing that can feel like you're just kind of producing content into the void sometimes. Um, but I, you know, going to Purpose, I bumped into a few subscribers and it was lovely to meet them and hear from them. Um and that that kind of that that occasional feedback that, that that's I find it incredibly encouraging, um, but it's also a thing where we can't not like there is a before we were on this you were saying that you just love these conversations you love the medium yeah um, I also as my for my own sense making although in, in past probably the past two months I haven't really been doing the best sense making but like I like writing as a means of thinking more clearly yeah so I'll sometimes start with a seed of a thought and as I explore it um I realize actually no that doesn't make sense or I disagree with myself but there's richer profundity to be found in amongst it and then then I share it as a newsletter to um to my subscribers the newsletter newsletter that's right um and uh yeah it takes a lot of work it's not really, it doesn't make sense from a commercial perspective, but it's not really the metrics in which I'm engaging this. It's more of a qualitative thing of like sense-making in real time. Yeah. And I think like um, sometimes these things, you start them because like maybe, I, I don't know what you're thinking was, but maybe some people think, oh, it'd be good to have a newsletter as well that'll get me more of an audience or whatever. And like, but like, I feel like when I read the newsletter and the same thing, I have a tiny sub stack, but I, I just do it every week as a practice. I feel like you do it because you enjoy doing it. Then it sort of becomes its own thing. Yeah, and that's that. That is the way to go about these things. I think that <clears throat> there's been this perversion that's happened into the the thinking space, um, where people say, "Oh, write a book." You know, it doesn't matter what it's about. No one's got time to read it, but it's your business card. It's your door opener, <laughs> and like that is horrible. Um, I mean, I was given that advice earlier on, and I'm not. I'm not. I'm not, I'm mildly proud of my first book, but I also think it's a little bit sycophantic. Like you I was, called yourself out actually a purpose, saying my first book's no good, my second one's much oh, better. Oh, did I? I okay, that was I'm terrible really about that. Yeah, yeah that I've, I've, I've been told off like my yeah, so, so for, <laughs> for doing that. But you know, there, it's, I think the thing is like we we evolve and grow as people, right? Um, but what I yearn for, and this is again one of the things I love about Web three is there's this nostalgia for Web one. 
And in Web 1, we have these kooky independent websites and things like that. People are just doing it because it's fun and they want to share things. Back then, we had blog roles before social media where, you, you know, if there's other blogs that you like, you'd include it there and so on. It's just wholesome and really nice. And, and I think people have become a little bit too fatigued with all the slick strategies to kind of encourage signups and to sell and upsell and upsell and upsell. And I think that um, I think that people are, are yearning for something wholesome on the other side of that. Um, the tricky thing is we still live within this distraction economy. We still need to do things that, you know, garner some attention. Otherwise, well, particularly if you're a practitioner, um, otherwise you don't attract work. So it's, it's a dance. It's a delicate dance. What I mean, one of the things I noticed I really liked about your approach to um, both oration and writing is you seem to do it in your own voice when you write and speak and, and persona. And like you've got an interesting way of writing where sometimes really short sentences, always in this very poetic kind of pirate oh, fox space. Nice. That's um, but then also full of like witty, pithy footnotes and then symbols sometimes and like clarifying things and. It's just really fun to read a book that's written by somebody who it, it feels like they're talking to you, and that's why I always like audiobooks also. But reading yours, it feels a lot like that. I'm just curious about how you got your style and kind of – it's such a unique way of speaking and kind of thinking out loud almost. Uh, it's really nice feedback. Thank you. Um, and and it's also something I echo back to you about why I love your podcast and the one-take unedited form. I feel like for me, I, I yearn for – something that is as as close to wholesome and real as we can get. There is this, for anyone who's very online, you've got bullshit radars. You can, you can sense pretentiousness. You can sense like when, oh, we, we've kind of gone into, I, I've done it a couple of times when I said our defaults are the options we choose automatically and the options are like, we, we know when like people are going into that mode. Um, how did I find my style? I think there's this thing I generally do on stage where if I have an insecurity rather than rather than hold it within me, which then turns into this kind of punitive metacognition where I'm judging myself in real time mm. and then spiraling afterwards, I kind of exercise it, you know, uh, like a like releasing the demon. And I'll kind of verbalize it like what's on my mind, oh I'm worried about that or something. And that's generally genuine generally speaking, it's kind of served me well in thinking back early career. And so when I write, I I think of this is probably more of a trauma response to being misunderstood or something. I, I I have this kind of paranoia that is a good asset as a facilitator because you have an acuity for like how you can be misinterpreted. But as I write things, I'm like, oh, what are the like? How could this be misunderstood? And um, because often when I'm navigating complex domains, there's multiple interpretations that are available to folks, and um, I'm usually trying to canvas that um, you know that that there's not one clear way of saying. This and there's also both and it's contextual. Can I read a short passage yeah, from your book that yeah. illustrates one of my favorite things that you've done? So here's one where you're talking about default mode. And so you're talking about the default information diet serving to validate existing worldviews and default thinking. And then just sort of skipping a little bit, but then you're right. But what's the solution? Question mark. Abandon news altogether? Question mark. And you've got, as Mark Twain once said, if you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you read the newspaper, you're misinformed. But then I go back to the footnote, which is uh, abandoned news altogether nine. It says, actually, abstaining from consuming any news is better than consuming most of the news stories on commercial stations and sponsored websites. It's just very, like, that's that's like good banter. 
Yeah, that's right. I'm b- bantering with myself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's. Uh, I'm glad you like it. Did your agent like it? No, <laughs> no, no. And like the editor, the the first editor I worked with wanted to remove all the footnotes. What? Um. Yeah. And this is the, this is the thing. I, and I I pushed back on that and I got a different editor. Um. Because <laughs> uh, yeah, there is this conformity, uh, this kind of coherence bias that sorry conformity bias that we have, which kind of quashes the uniqueness and. Oh, I just, you know, the algorithms these days just groom us. Like you just, you just see the formats of of LinkedIn posts these days. You know that they're kind of they're, they're, We should apologize to LinkedIn after. I'm this so sorry, LinkedIn folks, but okay, it's, it's not your fault. It's, it's evil. I, I, you know, if we get mythopoetic here, imagine that the algorithm is a kind of god, and people make their kind of daily tribute to the algorithm yep. in the way that they, that, that they suspect that the algorithm wants it. No, well, almost like cutting out a small part of your right. intellectual of this, and emotional of, of your soul. Yep. Yeah. And uh, no one really knows what the algorithm actually wants, mm. but we do these rituals anyway, yep. and they, they yep. hope that they might bless us with reach yeah. uh, or something like that. Yeah. Um, and and it's and it's kind of weird. Like uh, I'm doing this course at the moment by Josh, Joshua Shrey. He does a, the Emerald Podcast, which is a beautiful podcast. Um, I've heard of that. I think I actually heard about that at the last Purpose Conference. Oh yeah, 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 yeah great. Yeah, and he did a great episode on AI uh, recently. Um, uh, as in like a genuinely great episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, he was saying it's like it's actually quite weird in Western society how you know we spend most of our time staring at a at a, at a rock, as in like the silicon of our screens and stuff like that. We we'll spend most of our days just staring at that, and um, and they're being also so dismissive of intuitive magics and stuff like that from other cultures when we're really what are we doing? Um, so so yes, I I think that um, thank you back to the original question about writing. I'd love for people to just find their voice and that the hack that I have, hack, oh God, the, the kind of, the, the sorry. <laughs> Everyone just, should just see the level of Jason's yeah, self-disgust right now. Sorry, what am I doing? Easy hack. Oh God. Um, my, the, the kind of, the thing I return to, there's a couple of things is like, would I be saying this if I was like writing a letter to a friend? Actually, as I say this right now, and you're getting a witness to it, this is my writing process. Mm. I'm reminding myself of that. Would I say this as if I was writing a letter to a friend or hanging out with with some folks in some sort of like context where I get to play as a wizard? Um, what I've been doing recently, I've been snared and I've been writing to some sort of phantom aggregate. The internet has been dishing me up the worst aspects of humanity and I've been responding to that and I don't think I've been at my best. I've been shaking fist at sky and doing doing those things and and even in my own sense like there's there's this like one of the things i've had the habit of doing is deleting most of my past work i get to this like i've done it three times now i've regretted it every time i don't i'm hoping i'm not going to do it again but i get to this point where i'm like embarrassed by my previous work compared to where i currently feel yeah, that i am yeah. and no i i can relate to that yeah well the internet preserves this is this is not this is like eldritch right yeah. in life things decay yeah in in life, we have oral cultures where we kind of, the story is updated. It, it used to be that, and a friend of mine, Michael Dixon, talks about how we used to be able to fly places and disappear for a few months and come back changed. But nowadays, we land, we tap back into our social networks, we keep maintaining the same person that we are, mm-hmm. and all of this is is kind of catalogued by the internet that never forgets and it never perishes. And there's something weird about that. Um so yeah, so so as an attempt to kind of stay as human and as organic and as real as we can, there's like 
occasionally I back against that, but um, I'm not sure if it's always healthy or recommended. Well, I think there's a like an amount of character reveal in there that's unique and interesting. And I think we all want to read things that are different and interesting. I mean, at least I would have thought that's what people want. Maybe people all write the same books on here are the 12 rules to life and here are the next 12 rules to life and here are the 48 rules of power and this and that. And I think they're the people that listen to podcasts on 2x speed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, you know I've got a problem with that. So no, look, I think I think that's quite amazing, and, and perhaps this might just take me to my next topic. Um, you talk a lot about authenticity, which I think is really important. I want to understand how you think about authenticity and what it means, but then what is post authenticity? Yeah, this is one of those um, emergent things on the edge that's exciting me. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think the quest for authenticity can become tyrannical, in that we can hold up some version of an ideal self of how we should act in different uh, in a particular context. But the thing is, we'll always fall short of that ideal. And that ideal changes based upon the context we find ourselves in. The true authentic self, I mean, which self? You mentioned this before. Mm. Like you've got you've got like dad mode, you've got podcast mode, mm. you've got best mate mode, lazy you've got mic like mode. lazy napping in the afternoon, yep. mic mode. That's no, not lazy, it's it's the restorative. You got like the the you know, the leadership work work yeah. you're doing with your clients, like the different modes that call for a different aspect of yourself. Yep. And so post authenticity recognizes that we exist in multiple um aspects in multiple contexts. It has us realize that we we play different roles. And so it does require us to have a sense of authenticity, but we don't obsess about authenticity because that can become a narcissistic, tyrannical quest. Um, there's a wonderful quote by Dr. Martin Shaw. Um, he says, your, your authenticity lies in your incompleteness. Mm. Your authenticity lies in your incompleteness. If we accept that we will never really be complete, there's always more we can do, there's always more we can improve, we'll never actually truly find authenticity, it means that we can be a little bit gentler about that quest and just just have a sense of like, yeah, this feels good enough. And then instead of being obsessed about our own authenticity, we focus on what role am I playing and what does this role require of me? Yeah. What am I called to do in this instance? Um, you know, a post-authentic leader may be feeling terrible. They may have a migraine, but if it's a really important event, they show up and they don't talk about themselves or their migraine. They show up and they play the role that they, they yep. do in that context. And the same applies across multiple roles. Like maybe in a conversation with your partner and um, you realize that my role here is to be you, the life partner and friend not the consultant come to fix the problem mm. with these like solutions, yep. right? So, so I I like that, and it's helping me feel a little bit more relaxed because there's part of me that cringes when I go into Dr. Jason Fox's role and do things that I know is actually doing things to position and remind everyone, hey, this is the work that I do, and I actually, you know, here's all the happy clients and so on, um, because that's just one aspect of me. That's not that's not all of me. Yep. Um, and the same with like it also makes me more okay seeing the different aspects of other people who I know that are, all of us are yeah. complex beings. Yeah, I love that. I, th I think there's like a really interesting thing there about um, like if you spend too much time talking about authenticity and your desire to be authentic, don't you by default become inauthentic? 
Oh, yeah. Trying to be authentic. <laughs> exactly. All authenticity is performative anyway. Yeah. Watch me perform vulnerability yeah, and yeah. authenticity. Yeah. yeah. Like, whereas just being yourself, you wouldn't be talking a lot about authenticity because you're too busy just being yourself. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but, but I like um, what you bring to that is that idea that, like, a healthy level of discomfort with um, our own um, perceived natural authenticity and the fact that we are kind of all grappling with various roles and trying to, um, trying to be okay with not needing to reconcile them all the time. Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, this links in a few things. It's like this beautiful book, uh, Immunity to Change by Robin Keegan and Lisa LaHaye, which talks about how sometimes when we struggle to achieve goals, it's often because there's hidden commitments or conflicting values. And understanding that, okay, we've got conflicting values, so where do they show up in what context and so on? Not that we want to map all of these things, but just understand we're complex. And you're right. Like, if we can just ease up on, ease up our own quest for authenticity and show up more with more presence to the roles that we play. Um, I think that will lead, that will orientate towards much more fulfillment. Um, and this goes back to the question you asked before about, you know, if everyone's aspiring to be the leader, you know, and like, where, where does that aspiration come from? I think that society manufactures want, particularly social media. It manufactures the sense of lack that we're not enough and we need to do more. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the reality is, we are enough. I agree. I think it's social media. I think it's family pressures. I think it's yes. uh, friend pressures. I think it's, um, are we keeping up with the Joneses pressures? It's sort of like, oh, my mate's a CEO now. Shouldn't, well, you're the same age. Shouldn't you be a CEO? Like that kind of, oh, he's got that car. Should I have that car? And and it's also like the economy and yep. and like, you know, I, I would like to see wage increases and mm. so on. And, and uh, you know, that we don't have to be working so hard and striving so much. Um yeah, there's a lot going on. Well, I am completely with you on the quest to co-create a world that's more curious and kind. I love your book. Um, just a quick shout out to How to Lead a Quest, a guidebook for pioneering leaders. And we didn't actually cover this point. So so, so maybe, I mean, this was in my notes. Can we touch on it quickly? Of course, yeah. Um, what for you as a pioneering leader? Um, well, quite simply, someone who ventures beyond the default. Good. Um Yes. Good. I'd be remiss not to at least cover the, my <laughs> oft-repeated bullet point there. Um, fantastic book, The Newsletter. Oh, yeah. So if you want to tap into my Fox Wizard persona, um, brace yourself. Uh, you can go to foxwizard.com. Uh, otherwise, my enterprise persona is drjasonfox.com. And they can check out all the personas at those sites. Um, can people get in touch with you to learn a bit more about your work? Is the website the best place to go? Yeah, yeah. I'm terrible at social media. Um, but um, keep up to date with the newsletters um, and, uh, you know, watch as things unfurl. I think um, if you gently approach Jason with the, the coffee, um, not too direct, just like keep, That's keep, right. keep it up to me. <laughs> I'd laugh and be friendly. He's a great bloke. So thank you so much for being with me today. Oh, cheers. Mate. It's been a pleasure. Thank okay. you.